Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Happy New Year. Finally got into uh, 2017. I'm very excited. In that vein, I want to start off the year on a high note. Joining me now is Shams Afsal. He's the Chief Investment Officer of Private Wealth Consultants. And the man we rely on every day to give us insights and predictions and expertise on the market. Uh, Shams, uh, welcome to the show and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It's been a while. It's been a little bit. And, uh, you know, a lot's happening. I mean, it's the first of the year. So probably the first thing I want to ask you about is Janet Yellen decided to raise interest rates 25 basis points, a fourth of 1% in December. First time in 2016. Last time was December of 2015. One, is that going to have a significant impact? I believe the market pretty much priced that in. But uh, And two, what, how much of an impact did the forward guidance for 17 have? Well, um, based on 2015 and 2016 that followed, um, they don't think that three raises in the year is going to be feasible. So the market is taking it in its stride. If they start to believe the three... Uh, hikes that's coming in 2017, as predicted, uh, then the market will have uh, just uh, a little bit of a fit. It's going to recover from it, obviously, uh, but three is just a bit too much. And by three, we mean obviously 75 basis points added right. to the current 75 that takes us to one and a half percent for the Fed funds rate, which translates to probably over five percent in the 30 year mortgage. Okay. Okay, so that's that's a significant number on the yes. mortgage side. Then. Yes. And if you, I mean, the way I look at it, the average uh, selling price of a home today is roughly just over two fifty thousand. Okay, and if you assume twenty percent down, uh, every quarter percent for a typical home after twenty percent down translates to about four to five hundred dollars of additional um, uh, interest uh, that you have to pay per year. Okay. Okay, and. So the the way the home prices are going up, that's a bigger concern than this quarter percent moves. That's why I 
I really don't mind the 25 basis points per year. It's very much doable. I think even 50 is doable. If you go beyond that, then it starts to uh, really bump against the rising prices, which are still higher than the average wage growth. And then you compound that with 5% plus mortgage rates. Then you have probably a situation where you're seeing the construction market start to taper out a little bit. Now, would you say then that by going to 75 basis points per year increase versus 25 to 50, that we're getting a true monetary tightening effect rather than just kind of keeping up with the times at 25 basis points? That's exactly right. 25, basically all it's doing is kind of keeping you afloat as if to say, you know what, you're expecting 1.6 to 1.8% inflation overall in the basket of goods that they measure. So for that, 25 basis points just really keeps you, um, you know, uh, at water, basically. You're not drowning. You're not uh, quite all the way up. Yeah, it's not tightening where it's hurting things. That's right. Yeah, still keeping things from getting too loose, That's if right. you will. Yes, so, yes. Uh, okay, now, that, that being said, in September of last year, the Fed indicated two increases for 2017. Right. The December commentary said three. Is two already priced into the market for 17, you think? Um, hard to say what really the participants are thinking. I know, obviously, one is, uh, two with some gyration. Uh, three has a lot to do with um, a whole bunch of fanfare around new stimulus. Okay. Okay. Because if the stimulus package were to happen, by which I mean infrastructure package out of the Congress, um, then you may actually see three because that may be sizable. That if anything, over $250 billion uh, will require probably another hike. Okay. Now, that that being said, I mean, it, it was just – I just looked at the numbers – Yesterday and December 31st, national debt numbers was just under 20 trillion by a few bucks. I okay. mean, I mean, he, he wanted to end the year yeah. under 20 trillion and okay. end his presidency with less than yeah. than 20 trillion. With President-elect Trump saying, "Okay, we're going to put all this money in the infrastructure. We're going to stimulate the economy." Kind of a Keynesian thought process. Yeah. But what factor does that $20 trillion national debt number play into the market, into the economy, into interest rates? Because as interest rates go up, the yeah. uh, United States is the biggest debtor. They're the ones that's, that's right. going to pay the interest. You know, um, it's, it's strange, and this is going to sound almost ideological, but depending on if your guy is in power, um, if the guy is in power, then debt doesn't matter. So, so if he runs up a, right. a, a couple trillion, yeah. but it's infrastructure right. and we're all benefiting yeah. and he's our guy, yeah. we're, we're very so forgiving at, of that. At, at any given point, I think in the last, at least since Bush 44, I have found that um, spending is happening regardless of the promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just um, half of the country uh, will like the spending because it's being done by the people that they uh, like it's our guy. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that's part of the the uh, mindset that was under the uh, Obama administration right. was. I mean, he essentially doubled the national debt yeah. during his eight years, yeah. and but he was their guy, and yeah. 
and uh, did create a few jobs, although I, I'm not sure they were worth the trade-off for, for yeah. that amount of debt. Yeah. But uh, a lot goes into the national debt. It's not yeah. not that simple, really. Yeah. So uh, now that, that being said, um, stock market uh, did essentially exactly what you thought it would do after the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask kind of put you on the spot a little bit. Yeah. Um, it, it's easy to attribute the end of the year rally in the market to uh, Donald Trump becoming uh, president elect. Mm-hmm. Would we have had a similar rally in the the market at the end of the year if we'd have had a president elect Clinton? Well, uh, that's that's a tough one. Um, the way we were preparing for our practice here, at least, is um, to pick our own winners and losers. And we knew of the bad that health care, uh, at least drug pricing, would be on the chopping block. And so we wanted to adjust accordingly. Uh, that obviously goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just one area where things are different. Um, if you look at the Dow Jones Industrial and its overperformance over the S&P 500, uh, you know, the biggest winner of the election company-wise is Goldman Sachs. Just eight years after the financial crisis, who would have, I could not have told you that the biggest winner in just eight years after the crisis would be Goldman Sachs. Right. But they are. Okay. So they were the winners and then industrials, uh, which have not really done well over the last two years. Right. It's just a big expectation on this infrastructure play. So 2017 could be more volatile than 2016 or 15 if, um, if these um, expectations don't bear out. Finally, you know, a big thing that affects those earnings, or one of the things that affects those earnings, of course, is the strength of the dollar. Yes. And the the dollar's been on a tear for, what, 18, 24 months now. It's it's been growing. Yep. Uh, Even though our deficits have been going up and and that kind of stuff. Raising interest rates Mm -hmm. actually makes the dollar a little bit stronger yet. Yes. Uh, How is the, the valuation of the dollar going to affect us in 2017 do you see a pullback in that dollar but you know with two or three interest rate increases that's going to support that absolutely i i would like to see it pull back it may sound uh um, strange uh to the the person you know that doesn't involve themselves in currency markets but the dollar strength historically 14 year highs or whatever they are it's it, it doesn't need to be this high and what I mean by that is we, to some extent, as an import-based nation, um, yes, there's a lot of savings that our consumers are seeing throughout the board because, um, you know, everything becomes a little bit more affordable, mm-hmm. right? But at some point, you have to have strike the balance between exports and imports, and you cannot, for the indefinite period run these trade imbalances okay so that's one concern but again trade imbalance is not a kitchen table kind of a discussion so let's put that aside what's more meaningful at that point is the fact that this persistent strength of the dollar over the last two years is causing many markets that sell to us pass on price increases knowing the strength of the dollar and the expectation that the Federal Reserve is the only central bank in the developed world that's tightening. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is still in the process of loosening monetary policy. So that means that they're uh, sneaking in price increases. Our consumers are not getting the benefits that they should have received. 
because they're actually paying for it. Right. Well, and, and, you know, some of the emerging market countries have borrowed money in dollar denominations. Yes. And it's cost them a lot more money to pay that back yes. than what they anticipated. Yes, and so. that, that pain has been throughout the board. You know, all of 2016 is going to continue to be that way because many of these um, sovereign debt uh, typically is above 10 years in maturity, right. right? So this is going to be a long-term process. That's why uh, the market, in, at least the emerging market as a basket, has underperformed um, the U.S. for the last two years for that reason. Because mm-hmm. of the strength of the dollar, it's just—it's unimaginable how these little things, you know, end up, you know, having these butterfly effects yeah. across the globe. Yeah, I mean the the ripple effect. Nothing is as simple yeah. as what the headline leads us to believe. That's right. You know? Well, we've been speaking with Shams Afsal. He's our chief investment officer over here at Private Wealth. Uh, Shams, once again, very informative. Let's do it again soon. Keep up on these interest rates because I, I think that's going to affect us. And you know the. The Trump presidency going to be under a microscope the first 100 days, and I want to be at the eyepiece. I want to see what he's doing. Yes, so, uh, yes. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Absolutely. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, it's been a long time since we've been in a recession. In fact, the last recession we called the Great Recession, 2007, 2008, 2009, that area. And, uh, you know, the longest period of time in modern history that the country has gone without a recession is 10 years. Since the end of World War II, there have been 11 recessions in the United States, and the average time between recessions is a mere six years and five months. Average recession lasts 336 days, and the longest recession was 18 months. This was the Great Recession, 2008-2009, and the shortest recession was six months in 1980. Now, When a recession hits, well, let's step back. Let's define what a recession is economically. From an economic definition, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, meaning the economy is contracting, it's shrinking. And uh, unemployment goes up. All kinds of negative things happen during a recession. The difficulty is you don't know you're in a recession until you've been in a recession for three to six months because of the two consecutive quarters needed for the definition. Now, what happens in a um, recession is the Federal Reserve, part of their, I guess, part of their mandate that they try to put out there is that They want to minimize a recession once it happens and try to prevent it from happening uh, at the beginning. So what they do typically in the past is lower interest rates to essentially free up money. Now, the smallest interest rate cut uh, from the uh, Federal Reserve was during the 90-91 recession, and that was about 2%. The largest 
interest rate cut during a recession was 9.84% during the 81-82 recession. Now, the average interest rate cut during a recession is around 4%, and that's based on 60 years of Federal Reserve data. The, the, the issue is that in every single recession in modern history in this country, interest rates were always much lower at the end of the recession than at the beginning of the recession. When, when the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates, they free up money. They make money cheaper to borrow and provide liquidity into the economy and this is supposed to stimulate spending and investing and and get us out of a recession trouble is we've been at very very low interest rates for a very very long time so yellen raising interest rates like shams and i talked about she's just not doing it very quickly we're kind of overdue or getting close to being overdue for a recession. And she doesn't have many tools in her toolbox to provide that liquidity and lower interest rates. Furthermore, the Fed has trillions of dollars worth of bonds and real estate securities on their balance sheet. So if interest rates go up, the value of those bonds and the real estate goes down and it'll go down significantly other countries around the world have been in a similar situation and have had to go to negative interest rates we're not in that position yet i don't see us in that position anytime soon but it's possible it's possible that if we were to get into a a serious recession that Yellen's hands are kind of tied after the first couple interest rate decreases. Now, traditionally, traditionally, a Republican president after a two-time Democratic president generally has a downturn in the economy, generally falls on the Republican watch. So sometime between now and the middle of 2019, I would not be surprised if we went into a recession. Doesn't scare me. Doesn't scare me. I've said many times, uh, recession doesn't bother me. I just refuse to participate in it. So if a recession does start to happen, I will adjust quickly but I won't let it scare me. I'm not going to be paralyzed or frightened by it. I tell you all this so you can expect it. Nothing scary if you expect it. Coming up next, Dan Mitchell, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, will be joining me. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dan Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. 
who specializes in fiscal policy, particularly tax reform, international tax competition, and the economic burden of government spending. His work has been published everywhere. The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, USA Today, and Investors Business Daily. His blog is International Liberty and can be found at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. He's one of my favorites. Dan, welcome back to An Economy of One. Oh, glad to be on the program. I uh, read all your stuff, you know, every day. And and uh, I got to tell you, you've been on a real tear lately about downsizing government. Do you understand how many people that you want to put out of work here? Well, I know I probably won't win any popularity contest uh, in the federal bureaucracy, but uh, but if you just go up and down the list of cabinet-level departments and all the other yeah. agencies and programs of the federal government, so much of it is not only contrary to what our founding fathers had in mind, but it's economically misguided because these are things that, that at the very least, the federal government shouldn't be doing, any, and in many cases, things that government at any level shouldn't be involved in. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about, you know, most recently we uh, saw a couple articles and, and some information on the Department of Agriculture and all the subsidies that go out, that kind of stuff. What do you think with a, a Trump presidency coming online next month, what do you think the possibility is that him getting rid of any of these cabinet position uh, departments or at least downsizing them significantly? Well, that's sort of the $64 question. Uh, Donald Trump did not campaign as a small government conservative. Mm -hmm. He campaigned against political correctness. He campaigned against low-skilled immigration. He campaigned uh, on all sorts of things. But as much as I would wish it was to the contrary, there's no particular agenda that he brings with him for small government. Now, some of his appointments like Congressman Mulvaney, to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget, do give me some reasons for hope. And the Republicans on Capitol Hill for years have been passing budgets that presume genuine entitlement reform. Uh, now, of course, Obama blocked those, but nonetheless, it was a very positive sign that they were serious about the long-run fiscal threat facing the country. Uh, so will they do that with Trump now in the White House? I hope so, but you know, to be honest, I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the the career politicians there, I mean, that that's it's partly how they define their power as to how much they they are able to spend both on their own constituents, but in in general also. But it's a new experience to, to have a businessman coming into this position. This guy his whole life has had to focus, had to be concerned about the bottom line. And I'm kind of hoping with the appointments he's named so far that he brings a, a business mentality to government. I mean, can we will that translate, you think, in, into the, the bureaucracy? Can can some of that uh, business acumen actually help us out here? If he decides that maximizing the growth of the economy is his goal and he does bring that business to common sense. To, uh, to Washington, yes, that would be very, very good news. Uh, but there's also an alternative, less, uh, less optimistic theory that he's just a populist. Yeah. And so he's going to give us tax cuts because that's playing Santa Claus. He's going to, but he's gonna also not going to touch 
because that would involve being a reverse Santa Claus. Mm. And and I'm just trying to be honest. I mm. don't know the answer. I, I wish I knew what he would do. I suspect that half the time I'll be happy and half the time I'll be upset, but that's just a guess. Yeah. Well, and, you know, half the time happy and half time not is better odds than we've had recently. <laughs> It's a step up. Uh, recently, you wrote an article that's near and dear to my heart where you talked about uh, veterans and the Veterans Administration. And uh, I've, I've felt for a long time that I could solve the health care for veterans uh, very, very easily if I had the power. And that's just let that veteran card be acceptable at any hospital, doctor, lab, dentist, vision anywhere in the country to take care of our our veterans you had some interesting thoughts on the veterans administration and and abolishing that and turning it over to the states didn't you well mostly what, what i did was i publicized the work of some of my colleagues at the cato institute michael mm-hmm. cannon and chris preble who said the best way of helping veterans because this is one of the few legitimate functions of the federal government national defense Right. And and uh, and fairly compensating the people who put their lives on the line uh, for the country. And what they suggest is instead of a cumbersome, inefficient, and oftentimes venal bureaucracy, which is what the VA has been with its secret waiting lists and things like that, whenever whenever a a person joins the military service, part of their upfront compensation is a package of insurance benefits that are akin to what the VA promises but oftentimes doesn't deliver. Uh, And that would lead to more honest budgeting. It would create a situation where veterans have exactly what you described. They would have an insurance package that would give them the right to pick their doctor, uh, not have some substandard VA facility where they get stuck on some waiting list. Uh, and, and tragically, in many cases, they died while on these secret waiting lists. Now, I want to be fair. And maybe it's because I, I've been in Washington for 30 years and I have <laughs> lots of friends who are government bureaucrats. But I suspect most people who work for the VA, notwithstanding the fact that there were plenty of bad apples with the secret waiting list, but I suspect most people at the VA, just like most people at the Department of Agriculture, Department of Education, are well-meaning good people. Sure. But government bureaucracies, no matter how well-intentioned people on the front line are, there's something inherently dysfunctional about them. Uh, in effect, so much of the federal government involves taking a leaky bucket and taking money from the states, carrying it to Washington, then spilling a bunch of money in Washington for the lobbyists and bureaucracy and stuff like that, and then carrying it back out to the states in that same leaky bucket. Right. So it's an incredibly inefficient way of trying to do things. One of the things I found interesting was not only that that benefits package at the beginning, but I think the key to that was that you use private insurance companies, private providers, to provide those benefits for the life of the veteran. Well, precisely, and and this gets at your point about making sure that veterans aren't shunted off into this inferior substandard uh, system of VA hospitals. Mm -hmm. If you give somebody an upfront insurance package and let them, uh, in effect, have an actuarially fair and balanced package that gives them the benefits, you know, of course, everything's adjusted for risk. Some people won't use any of their health care benefits. 
Some people will need it a lot, especially if they get injured in service of the country. The main thing, though, is they would be in charge. You can fire somebody who doesn't please you in the private sector. If you're a serviceman or a veteran right now, you can't fire the VA. You're stuck with them. Right. You know, every day we read stories about veterans dying in line, and, you know, it just breaks my heart because we pay them nothing to risk their life for our liberty. We pay them nothing. I don't know what salary is in the military, but it's nothing for what they do and what their families go through. And I don't like paying taxes. I don't like government involved in my life. But if there's one thing they should be, it's the veterans, I think. So, well, and what's, re- what's really astounding in a depressing way is if you look at the amount of money you can get by being on welfare and compare that to how poorly paid, in some cases, uh, our troops are, I, I don't know. I guess as a country, our priorities are completely upside down. Yeah. I don't know whether it was one of your columns I read years ago, but a, a single mom they said has to make in the private sector, in the job market, something like $60,000 a year to balance out all the money and payments and benefits and entitlements and stuff she would get on welfare. And uh, that's the wrong incentive, I think. Oh, yeah, no, the incentive structure is so upside down. Uh, The moment you start working to support yourself, you're paying all these taxes, and Mm -hmm. then you're losing all these handouts. And so the, the, the obvious moral of the story for someone who's just looking at it uh, from a purely monetary perspective, hey, don't work. Rely on the government. Yeah. And, of course, that has terrible long-run effects because children raised in those households have a much, much lower chance of successful life. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all want to want to uh, be what our parents are, and our parents want us to, to outdo them uh, in a normal situation. So uh, we're on third, fourth-generation welfare people, and and uh, I think we're paying the price for it. But uh, but it was interesting to read, uh, you know, all the departments that uh, you and your colleagues have looked at. And I agreed with everything. I'd love to get rid of the Department of Education and Department of Transportation and that kind of stuff. I, I just hope that a President Trump starts to do some of this stuff. He's going to be under a, an electron microscope the first hundred days, I think. And... I'm hoping that he fulfills some of those campaign promises of the executive orders and stuff. You know, you wrote a column recently about businesses and and capitalism, and, of course, you revived the the thing that I got chewed on several months ago by one of the listeners saying that creative destruction is really good for the economy. And a lady wrote me a really nasty email that it, uh, it hurts people rather than than helps people, but uh, you've done a lot of research on on the economy, and creative destruction is really part of the the overall change, isn't it? It is, but 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 let me say something. Your listener was right in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time there's some big new technological breakthrough in the free market that makes all of us better off in the long run, there are short run victims. Mm-hmm. I mean, the electric light bulb wreaked havoc with the candle-making industry. The the personal computer destroyed the typewriter industry. So if if your life had been wrapped up in working in a typewriter factory 
uh, or you know, a hundred years ago or whatever it was, you were you had a candle making factory or you worked in a candle making factory. The progress that the country experienced caused you to lose your job. Now, maybe in the long run, you wound up with a better job. Certainly, in general, the economy was much more prosperous. But but yeah, creative destruction does hurt people. But if we stop it. Will be hurt even more, yeah. and and that's what uh, you know. Well, what people don't understand is that uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it it's difficult sometimes, and and sometimes you know, policy wants in Washington. We don't understand or don't appreciate that real world people lose, right. but in the long run, we have to try to explain to them that this is much much better for the prosperity of us, our children, uh, everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we we. We have to have that progress uh, overall. We've been spending a little time with Dan Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's been published everywhere, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes. And he, his blog is International Liberty, and it can be found at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. Dan, once again, this has been a real treat for me. Uh, I got through about a third of my questions, so I, I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, President Obama may be a lame duck president, but he's got a couple weeks left before... uh, President-elect Donald Trump moves in, and he's not wasting any time. He's got his pen and his phone working overtime. Just wanted to touch on a couple of things as President Obama leaves office. December 31st, 2016 marked, of course, the end of 2016, but it also marked some very important milestones not the least of which the United States Treasury says that the federal national debt rose by over a trillion dollars in President Obama's final year in office, and the end of the year debt total was just under $20 trillion. Now, when President Obama took office, the national debt was just over $10 trillion. He has raised the national debt. Well, let me rephrase that. The national debt has risen under his watch by over a trillion dollars every year. He has just about doubled the national debt in eight years. Now, I'm the first to say that the president can't really spend any money. All money has to be approved through the House of Representatives. So when I say that President Obama has raised the national debt, uh, you know what, the Republicans are to blame also. Because all spending goes through the House, and the last few years the House has been controlled by Republicans. Democrats too. When Democrats are in power, they spend money too. The point I'm making is the government can direct a lot of money being spent, and the House doesn't put a cap on it, doesn't try to stop it. 
I said a few years ago, I think 20 to 25 trillion is probably our credit limit worldwide. And I didn't really worry about hitting that for quite a while. Well, that's on the horizon now. And if President Trump does what he says he promised he'd do on the campaign trail, the national debt is likely to keep growing at this pace or faster. That's a problem. I don't know what we can do about the problem. I don't know if we're past the point of no return or not. It feels like we are. $20 trillion is a big number. And I don't want to inflate our way out of that because that will destroy your wealth and my wealth in the meantime. And I don't think the economy can grow fast enough to pay that off. We haven't paid a penny on principle of the national debt since, I think, 1960 under Kennedy. I think that was the last time we paid a dime on principle. So Donald Trump becoming president is going to inherit a huge debt. Now, if there's anybody that can handle huge debt, it's probably Donald Trump. So we'll see what he does. But this is something that's going to drive a lot of our discussion in the coming months and years. Likewise, the Obama administration added 97,000 pages of regulation in 2016 alone. 97,000 pages of regulation. I don't know if that sinks in or not, but that's just one year's worth. That costs billions and billions of dollars of productivity to adhere to those regulations. That's the highest annual number of regulations under Obama. Now, President Bush issued more in the wake of 9-11, way back when, but President Obama has set a printing record in 2016. In addition, he has seized enough land for the federal government to cover Texas three times. Can you imagine three states in the United States having the land mass of Texas being turned over to federal lands? Think of what this means. You, you, you got to have the government's permission to do anything on that land now. Millions of acres. I think it's 533 million acres has been confiscated under President Obama. Now, every president does this. He's not the only one. I understand that. But nobody's done it to this size. Three times the state of Texas being seized. Why does the government need any federal lands? Any. They don't. Should be private property. You want to pay off $20 trillion debt? Sell all the land that the federal government owns to private citizens in this country. And I got to believe you'll come close to paying off the national debt. And I'd volunteer to be the realtor for that. I don't have a license, but I'd get one just to help them sell that land. 
I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.